Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Twyla After Show podcast. I'm Neil Malonson. Joining me, Twyla host Avery Davidson, producer Carl Wiggers, and Brian Hendrickson. This is your third podcast here. Well, we did one without you. We did one last yeah. week without you. Oh, I'm so I hurt. hosted so I'm expertly. So oh, hurt. That that's okay. Incredible. I'll just die neglected and alone. Anyway. <laughs> that's going to happen um, anyway. That um, podcast doesn't really affect that. Anyway, no. welcome to our dark side. Yeah. How about a happy start to the after show? <laughs> How do you really feel? It's been a minute. Yeah. It's been a I'm, minute. I'm bitter. Bitter. But it has been a minute, and I'm glad we're, we're back to it, because there's a, a lot of fun stuff on the show here, including... Um, Brian, you went out to the livestock show recently. It was your first Young Farmer and Ranchers livestock show. Tell me how that went. It went really good. Um, turnout, really, really good. Good to be back in the ring as, I mean, I wasn't showing, but I still like being behind the camera and capturing Just those being moments. in the room or in the arena was probably pretty awesome for you, right? Yes, yes. And they, that... Um, Lamar Dixon livestock. Look, yeah, that yeah. was a good facility. Very good. Um Take Lots your, of room. Take your yeah. word for it. Mm-hmm. What makes yeah. a good facility for a livestock show? Have good airflow. Um, that's a big thing, especially being out in in the ring for long periods of time. So those animals will what we call melt. Um, you know, get overheated in a sense, mm-hmm. but not truly overheated. Just kind of melt. Their muscle isn't as good looking and stuff like that. So you want a good flow of air. Um, good lighting. Um, it had good lighting. Yes. Nice. Yes, and it wasn't. Who knew? It wasn't like two tone lighting in there. They all had the same light. You know how I feel about that. Yes, I know. Which is why I'm making that point. Um, so it was. It was very good. It was very good. Nice. Yeah, I got to see her in action because I was there as well, shooting a little video while she was shooting the still photos. And I know I asked you about this on set, but for people who may not have seen the segment before listening to this, what makes a good livestock show photograph? Um, kind of like I said on set, angles. Um, and once again, it's gonna depend on what animal you're shooting. You know, the sheep and goat people look for something different compared to the pigs and compared to the cattle. You know, mm-hmm. cattle are like lo- high angles, like we do selfie photos from way up above. That kind of angles or the angles on the animal themselves. Angles on the animal. Okay, it's I'm about the animal, sure. not not I'm about ignorant. you, Carl. I'm it's ignorant. not I'm about you. I'm just looking for muscular development yes. and how yes. they present. Yes, you want to see how well their bone structure and you know how they're sitting on their feet and hooves or whatever y'all want to call them. Um, and Carl, you still don't want to take a picture where it has a double chin. Correct. Just saying. Correct. Uh, I get that. <clears throat> Just saying, For but if you are scenes. feeding your animal well, it will not have a double chin. <laughs> Same as for feeding ourselves well. What, what wow. about? Right. <laughs> wow! Exactly. What about the kids there? How was their their excitement and the the folks? It there? was really good. Um, it was good to hear. You know, the kids playing in the background, and um, you know, livestock shows. You see the kids playing in the with their little toy tractors while older siblings are showing and that was me for the record for anybody curious they're not um (laughs) (laughs) but it was just good to see that because i mean i a lot of my memories growing up happened at a livestock show Mm. and it was you know mom and dad bought a bike or something and we rode on our bikes or tricycles or whatever it was scooters um and you still see that you know we go to i still go to state fairs and stuff and you just see him playing i'm like that's those are the memories they'll 
they'll remember. Now, for those participating in the livestock show, how important is that interaction with the judge? Because the judge, I thought, did a really good job at this show. I thought that he was very personable and he gave really good commentary for each and every Every exhibitor. Every single one. Yes. Um, I actually want to say I talked to Monica about this and how well that he was phenomenal. Um, And I think he understood that a lot of these kids, it was their first time showing and and they just don't know. And having a judge take a minute and be like, if you fix this, it's all going to come together. And you saw it in the show ring. You know, I saw him go up and say, just switch how you're holding your show stick. And once she did that, that cow stood there and set up and did phenomenal. So it's, it's judges like that that make a change in our show industry, not only in the livestock side, because he was doing good on the livestock, but in the kids, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm one of those ones that uh, mom and dad could tell me 10 million times, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But when a judge tells you or somebody outside comes in and says, hey, like, change how you're bracing that, that animal. You're going to do it and you're going to see that change. Even though mom and dad has <laughs> have said it 10 million times to me, I'm going to change it right then and there. Sorry to my parents for the many years <laughs> of, of dealing with that. But, um, you know, judges like those are, are hard to find. And I have to give it to the exhibitors. Almost every single one of them went and shake that judge's hand. Mm-hmm. And yep. we don't see that often anymore. And I can tell you growing up, That is one of the key things a judge looks for because a lot of times showmanship is at the end of the show, not at the beginning. So that judge has all day to watch you and how you present yourself, your animal and how you you Mm -hmm. communicate with the judge. And they pick up on, you know, do you shake your hand even though you got last place? You need to go shake that judge's hand because they're taking time out their day out of their livestock deal so you're saying it's about more than just the animals yes <laughs> and it, yes. i think that way everybody walks out of there a winner because if you take a lesson from there and do place better the next show i mean that's oh yeah that's, oh yeah and he even came back to the backdrop and um you know i was in the ring for a little bit and was able to get some ring shots and him and i were actually talking and he was talking how much lamar dixon's setup meant to him um he was there to get certified for the Brahmin Association, I believe. Um, and he talked about, you know, people there made a difference for him that has impacted him through his life. And he's hoping that he can do the same at that show like they did. So I was like, that That's that means great. a lot to yeah. hear that. And well, the other thing I wanted to ask was, did you feel like this was, did you feel any from the crowd that they were relieved to be there after two years of being cooped up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, livestock showing really didn't halt as much as everything else. Um, And I have to give it to the people who made sure that didn't just because everything's on standstill. These animals Mm -hmm. are still being produced and and stuff like that. They I mean, those kids, a couple of them haven't seen each other in two years. You Mm -hmm. know, they may have been showing, but they weren't showing together. So that was good to see. And, you know, those friendships were rekindling and kids were out running. So it was it was. Yeah, 
as Vincent Canatella pointed out, two years is a long time for a 16-year-old. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of maturity that goes on between 14 and 16, 16 and 18, or even 10 and 12. I mean, that's you're, you're talking about very different levels of maturity. So to not be together for two years really could be a setback. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, to those kids, I don't think it did. Um, they came out showing pretty, pretty hard, pretty competitive. So it was good to see. Again, I, I mentioned and you said nobody cares, but I was the I was the little sibling, the younger sibling that wasn't showing any animals yet. But I was in the barns and I've been to these shows before, but I've never really, you know, have been an exhibitor or anything like that. And I don't know the industry like you do, but this judge you're talking about. What is his day job? What is he doing in the in the daytime to have such a passion for what he's doing? Is that like an ag teacher? Is that I a rancher? Think, I think he is just a rancher. He, I think, if I remember correctly, he does he raises Brahmin, Angus, and I believe one other breed. I can't tell you off the top of my head. Maybe Longhorns because he's from Texas. Okay. Um. So is that who that is that who's going out and judging these kind of events? Like yes. This? So you have ranchers like that who are well known in the industry um a lot of judges come from college and were livestock judges um and they've been judging animals all their college career um and that's kind of how they happen you do get some ag teachers in there a mm-hmm. lot of livestock judges end up going to be ag teachers so it all kind of plays plays together and i mean i think that's also helped our our show industry is getting those livestock judges in the ag programs to help those kids better their their um livestock all over that's cool i was just curious because i was like wait where do these guys come from because he sounds like he's clearly a gem yeah and i think he used to judge like i think i think he used to judge um so i mean he was a overall good guy he broke down and another thing is he was good on the mic whenever he talked about Mm -hmm. avery kind of touched on this you know whenever he talked about stuff on the mic he broke it down for the general public so explaining what what he's looking at and why he's picking what he's picking and why he kind of flowed with that all throughout that's cool so it was good very cool you were happy back in your element i was i was very happy (laughs) even though cattle aren't my my strong suit i was i was very happy to be back there yeah, so. his name, by the way, Reggie Rodriguez. There you go. I just so yep. everyone's wondering who's this judge everyone's talking about. Reggie Rodriguez from the other side of Houston, sort of between Houston and San Antonio, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Only there was any cattle out that way. Uh, I think there might be one or two, and there might be a little place where they take the spent grain from a certain brewery and feed it to the cattle that Neil and I visited once mm, before. Spetzel. From Shiner, Shiner beers Shiner? made there, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was that was an awesome trip. Um, of course, you know I'm going to get the subject on beer. You got to right? go find beer somehow. <laughs> yep, not that uh, any of us are interested in that. Never. Um, Weird. I do not so, drink alcohol, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! This anyway, let's uh, let's get away from that potential liability and go on to from the hooves and the the raw product to the finished product, and that's cooking it. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl, you had you got to see some youth uh, taking care of the other end of our ag products. There, so I wrote it this way in the show that we love cooking segments shows. I don't know. I would say us Americans, but I think it's everywhere. I think it's just been a thing that has been popular on TV and it's become just 
crazy. It seems like there's a cooking show for everything. Mm-hmm. And whenever I got the email about this event, I was, it was like, it's kind of like chopped for students. And I was like, I'm in, I'm in. Cause I love, I, I don't really personally watch that much of the cooking show, many of the cooking shows, but I love finding ways to involve, like get involved with 4-H, 4-H stories. And if it involves cooking and then also Louisiana commodities, I was like, Hey, this is a match made in heaven for, especially for what we do on Twyla. Mm-hmm. It was an awesome event. Brianne and I went up to Alec, uh, Alexandria the shelter to the mega shelter. And there were 40 teams from across the state that showed up to, and these are fourth through 12th graders. It was mind blowing that they, they had 40 minutes. They had to put together a plan. They had to, go and shop in the pantry with you know they had a budget they had to go and shop the pantry for the items they needed and they had to cook it and then they had to go not only cook it and you know plate it beautifully but they also had to break down the nutritional facts oh that's cool for the dishes they were cooking because it's you know it's the idea of it is being like healthy living uh claire zach is the healthy living specialist for the four H uh, Louisiana four H and she's the one that put it on. So of course it had to have like the, a healthy twist to some Louisiana products. But I was just like, I couldn't tell you, I can read the nutritional facts on the back and still not tell you what that means. And they're having to create a dish from nothing and come up with those nutritional facts. So, you know, they understand it at least to an extent. I, it was super impressive. And when you, talk about this event they were expecting a certain number of people to participate they, uh, and said, how many actually participated well i said they had 40 teams that participated their goal was nine <laughs> nine was their wow. goal they're like if we can just get nine teams to wow. show up and i think there was there's three divisions mm-hmm. like a fourth through sixth maybe a seventh through ninth or something like that and then up to 12th grade and I think they were thinking if we can get three teams per division, it'd be a success. And there were 40 that showed up and it was just mad. I say madness. <laughs> Bree, you were there. There was a big room. Lively. Lively. There were, mm-hmm. there were teams kind of, they staggered the starting of each team so and that they, they were timed. They were all timed. So there were timekeepers. There were judges walking around. There were, you know, people bringing new teams in, volunteers bringing new teams to get started. They were shopping. The kid, the students were running around shopping and it was, it was a lot going on. It was really cool, but 40, 40 was a lot. And I don't know if it was more than they planned on. I mean, obviously it's more than they expected, but I don't know if they were not planning for that many, but it was. But that's a good thing. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's yeah. too many in a good, good right. way, but to see that there was that kind of interest, I loved the matching uniforms a that a lot of them <laughs> wore. Um, and, you know, my, my favorite cooking show, aside from Good Eats by, with Alton Brown, is Iron Chef. And so this is like right up that same alley where mm. it's, I eat cuisine, you know, go and cook. I don't, I, I just told you I don't really watch them, so I don't. But you, you should, especially should. the old Iron Chefs from Japan. Because, I don't know if you remember this, whenever we went, we were in Japan. I know. 2020. We were in that R-I-P. big produce market mm-hmm. where they had the auctions on the wall was a big uh poster, poster of Sakai-san uh Hiroyuki Sakai who was from the original Iron Chef series don't remember that at all 
really? remember you pointing that out. Did you point that out to me? Yeah, or? yeah. I just thought that was the coolest thing ever because I was like, wow, I'm like one degree of separation well, from Well, not Sakai-san. to go too much of a sidebar, but I don't think we did an after show. We did an after show, but not really. <laughs> we did one there. and then never mm-hmm. aired it. <laughs> um, but it was too noisy. That's the reason we were in the hotel lobby. It was too mm. too much noise. But talking about that market was so cool. It was under like a shopping mall. They, mm-hmm. Like the basement level was just a a massive produce market with you know meat counters and all the other. It was mm-hmm. the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. It was neat. Anyways, back to not Iron mm-hmm. Chef, but the 4-H uh, food challenge. It was really cool. Um, you know, not all the dishes were premium top notch but considering that they were all edible and yeah. like done by fourth fifth sixth graders even that's seventh, what i was eighth, gonna say considering 11th graders how intimidating the did age, you feel Mr. oh my gosh it'd be hard for an adult to do that stuff much less kids in 40 were, minutes yeah oh my gosh i heard i, I yeah. did have my camera right oh, by that, one of the that teams. was cute i had one my camera right by one of the teams i heard one of the i mean they're probably fifth sixth graders this is so stressful like yeah. while I'm there videoing and I was like, I don't think, and I don't think it was me being there. I think they were just trying no, to. No, I heard it several times. You heard like, a lot of places. I'm so stressed. I don't know. Like, and then you always had that one person on the team. It's going to be okay. It's yeah. going to be mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. But it was, yeah. I couldn't imagine doing that in 40 minutes. I barely, I cooked burgers the other night and I don't, I don't think I could have done burgers in 40 minutes. And the upside is it was shrimp provided by the Louisiana Seafood Promotion and Marketing Board. You nailed that. And that shrimp cooks really quickly it so does. that was well, that was helpful and not only that they had to peel the shrimp like it was they, oh, had, they yeah they were so some, it was head on yes. head on, but and, you could use the heads for stuff too well, well, and that's what they just mm-hmm. didn't i mean i heard several times that when they, they got still their frozen. shrimp yeah they, they were, were still like, frozen they're having like how do we do this real quick. it was <laughs> yeah it was a challenge but <laughs> i uh, i was very impressed and you asked how intimidated i was that morning before i left Brittany asked me, she said, do you want me to pull out some pork chops to cook? Do you want to grill some pork chops tonight? And I said, and this is before I'd even left the house to go shoot this event. I was like, I don't know, babe. I'm probably going to be a little bit feeling like feeling pretty less than whenever I get home after watching all these these kids eat uh, cook. Mm -hmm. And I did feel very much like I was like, (laughs) man, what was I doing in fifth grade? Not this, mm-hmm. not peeling shrimp and cooking it up. And and then at the end of the day, again, knowing how to present it with the nutritional facts and be able to, they had to present this to judges and explain their budget and their process and what they put into the, like what fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grader knows how to, can do that. These. You know? These, these and I kids was, can. I was blown away. I was very impressed. And I think that ties into a greater movement of, you know, educating the kids on practical skills that will mm-hmm. help them all their life, you know. And one thing Claire told me, she's like, I really wanted, we wanted to use a Louisiana product because mm-hmm. we have such great commodities here to cook with. I mean, not just shrimp, but mm-hmm. crawfish and sweet potatoes. And I mean, all the produce that we grow. I mean, mm-hmm. there is, mm-hmm. there's plenty, there's plenty to work with. Definitely. Uh, rice. There was a lot of rice that was being used in some of these dishes, too. Goes well um, with shrimp. But she's like, we have so much to do, and we want our students to learn how to cook Louisiana products, but also how to do it in a healthier way. She's like, yes, we all love the the less than healthy, you know, three or four sticks of butter types of dishes. But there are other healthy ways to cook these same products. And I was like, that's cool. And, you know, so it's 
I think baby steps to getting where we need to be. I, I think you're right. I think it is a greater movement that's going to yeah. be much, much welcomed and needed in our state. Well, speaking of Louisiana products, Louisiana sweet potatoes, as you mentioned, are a big thing. Mm -hmm. Avery, you were out in a sweet potato field recently. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, not too terribly long ago, went and visited uh, Earl Roy Enterprises in Avoyles Parish. And uh, they grow and package and market sweet potatoes. And uh, this family, uh, Cynthia Veed, her brothers David Roy and Joey Roy, are all still involved in the business. And it's a great example of Louisiana agriculture being passed generation to generation and how the Louisiana Sweet Potato Commission helps make that possible and has for the last 70 years. I mean, they're talking about the importance of the research done at the Sweet Potato Research Station. They're also talking about the innovation made on on the seed, mm -hmm. the slips, if you will, to be able to plant those. And those are all things that are very important to keeping the sweet potato industry going for the next 170 years. 170 know? or just 70? Well, I'm, I was saying that because <laughs> the Sweet Potato Commission has been around for 70. However, we've had sweet potatoes growing in Louisiana for longer than than that so i kid i kid if we if we wanted to go ahead and go another 170 years i think we want to be able to do it in perpetuity because you know as the the roys point out louisiana sweet potatoes grow just a little bit sweeter they mm. grow a little bit better here and it's partly because of the soil and i see brianne making a face i don't know where she's had any better sweet potatoes but unless you've had an evangeline and or an orleans <laughs> No, but I've had my mama's. Mm, yeah, but, but that's after. Yeah, imagine. Fixed. No, like we. She grows Yeah. Them? Oh, wow. Yeah. We grow our own little sweet potatoes. They have their own little garden. They do. They feed me well. Gotcha. Mm. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. So the thing about sweet potatoes is everybody thinks of them as that Thanksgiving treat, but sweet potatoes are at least keep all year round. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a challenge for the growers who have all these potatoes and, you know, they've got to get rid of them. I mean, they, yeah. they don't keep indefinitely, right? Right. Well, I mean, you, if you store them properly, one of the secrets to making sweet potatoes keep longer is don't wash them. Mm -hmm. Keep the dirt on them. And that actually helps them keep even longer. Uh, washing them actually will make it to where they, they don't keep as long as I've learned the hard, hard way before mm -hmm. <laughs> in, my, in my pantry. But, you know, that they're also available frozen as well. I mean, mm -hmm. sweet potato fries right. from the sweet potato processing plant there in Delhi. Did they talk about that much? Yeah. Are they, are they, do they no, sell any of theirs? Up to they're almost straight fresh market. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the focus of, Earl Roy Enterprises is to be able to distribute fresh gotcha. market uh, sweet potatoes. I know I've done a story up there forever ago now, um, but it's become a, a huge market. And I heard them talking about it whenever I was at the research station mm -hmm. in Chase, that that's opened up a whole new market for Louisiana sweet potato growers. That's really kept a lot of them in business because it's a new, you know, another another outlet for all right. the crop. Because not every, you know, every, every root is not a number one. Right. And... It's an outlet that they needed more than ever because one of the other outlets here in Louisiana, Bruce Foods, over there just outside of New Iberia, Koto, shut down. Mm -hmm. Once that operation stopped, they, they were using sweet potatoes for canning and for pancakes, of mm -hmm. all things. 
Uh, they, had, they would sell a sweet potato uh, pancake mix. Sounds like something my wife would like. I was about to say, that sounds like something my mom would like. <laughs> something I'd like. I mean, but... Uh, hey, you know. after the other day, when you and I went to do the next segment, Sweet Potato Spoiler, mm-hmm. uh, or teaser, I guess, I would eat sweet potatoes with anything oh, he cooked. Dude, whenever... Golly. At Cafe Josephine there in Sunset, Louisiana. We'll talk about that when we get to it. I don't want to give away too much, but... Oh my gosh! Yeah, what an amazing I would eat meal. Pancakes from him, that with sweet potatoes in it. Anyways, we can keep moving. I just <laughs> that made me think about that. Sorry. Anyways, mm. Neil, what's your story about? We've talked about all of our stories. What's your story about? I feel like you probably got the the most. I don't know, Aggie story. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Sweet potatoes is pretty aggy. I think all you guys have aggy stories, but mine is a little uh. different in that it's a forestry story. Forestry. I guess that's what I'm thinking of. It's just different than the you rest know. of our what, what um what we have in the show. Um, I followed there from the Louisiana Women in Ag convention that happened a couple weeks ago. They did several tours the next day after the main part of the conference, and one of them was to St. Lucia Plantation in northwest Louisiana. They say they're in Logansport, but they're really outside of Logansport, outside of an even smaller town called Longstreet. So, I mean, it's way, way out there, almost to Texas. Um, Incredible plantation, a family legacy from the 1800s. There's remnants of the old family house out there, or the previous owners, I think I should say, but, you know, it's been handed down. But, um... Uh, the lady who runs it now, uh, her name is Hannah Gamble, and mm. her dad basically decided to start an empire for their family and started expanding and buying up land, and they're out over 1,200 acres mm-hmm. now. What she's doing is expanding this to change the way their forest management style is. And one of the things that they, you know, they do in forestry, of course, is, I mean, as you might, may as well expect, there's... You want to get as many trees, as much lumber off that land as possible. So they, of course, plant trees as close together and as as many as they can. Well, there's some issues with that. One, of course, is wildfires. Two is that with the uh, coming of hogs, they've had that dense, thick tree cover is perfect haven for all of those wild pigs Mm -hmm. that run loose through there and they can nest and den in there. So... While they still have some of that that they're cycling through on that, what they're trying to do is manage for different things, one of which is ecotourism. So they want people to come out there, stay on the land, you know, utilize it, go through it, be able to walk through it, um, do some four-wheeling if they want to, bike, you know, mountain bike, whatever, but see more of the prettier attraction, you know, to that land. Second thing is they're doing things like managing for future conservation efforts, things like um, carbon sequestration, as well as some other things that, you know, may make them eligible for federal programs to get some of those dollars rolling through. And finally, wildlife, you know, they're managing for quail, they're managing for deer, they're thinking about these things that are more attractive to it. So they're moving it through. It's not just forest products. Similar to the story you did from Morehouse Parish a little while back? Yes. Um, And that's... Did you hear the term silvopasture? I have. When they're talking about... When they were talking about, you know, talking about managing for for 
uh, carbon sequestration. Yes, that I could not come up with the words. She that made me that think about tour and introduce them. Made to me it. think about possibly like the, the great like grazing is what silver pasture right. grazing in mm. forest land almost made me think about that might be a. But I was curious if that was any. Well, she's an experienced horsewoman. She you know has some different land where she runs her horses. She brings them out there occasionally, and so they do run cattle. They do run some of that through there. So that's. Her whole thing is the the thing that we've seen through farming in the last you know forty years or so, which is diversification, mm-hmm. and so uh, this is part of it. And bringing wildlife, bringing you know the deer back, so people can hunt the land as well as um, manage it for forestry. So all of these sorts of different things are there. And I mean, her her the tour started at something like ten that morning, and I mean. At 1.30, she was still talking. I mean, there mm-hmm. were still things that we needed to see. Um, she, We went to some of the area where it was burned, so they, you know, they're managing for that. Louisiana wildfires are, I mean, they're an issue, but they're way down. I mean, it's only like uh, they've gotten it down as low as 400 acres a year when wow. you compare that to California. Of course, California is a bigger state, but they're not doing these prescribed burns. And so there, there's a lot more fuel on the ground. There's a lot more danger there, and mm-hmm. so they're trying to run that you know, on that, on, at St. Lucia's. What's really cool about this, and I'm, was not raised around forestry. I don't really understand it that well, but what I can gather is forestry is this long, it's a long game. Yes. And you're playing for a a 25, 30 year out Mm -hmm. uh, payday. Right. Whereas it sounds like what she's doing, I mean, I know there are paydays along the way, but what she's doing, it sounds like is opening up, maybe not going to make as much at that end payday, but try and, have continued revenue, we know, with right. those uh, opening it up to the public like that. That's really cool. Right. It, that, and and it is. And I mean, all that land goes to waste otherwise, you mm-hmm. know. Um, another thing that I think was critical, it, it's not in the story, but I think that there is an issue there that people need to think about. We talk about estate planning with, you know, on some of the other stories we do. A lot of the landowners in Louisiana, and there's 100,000 plus, have issues where they've got, you know, this family succession and it's quote unquote our land, but they've got 30 people that's it's their land managing like 60 acres. Mm. And so she's trying to buy up a plot next door and they can't get 30 people to agree. I mean, you know, you think about your family, get everybody in your family to agree on one thing, (laughs) how hard of a thing that is, much less when it's, you know, multiple uncles and cousins and et cetera, et cetera. People that have never probably seen the land. They've never even been to the land, don't, couldn't spot it on a map, but yet, you know, won't sell it or won't manage it. And so it's a problem for them next door, whereas they've gotten it down. Their dad made sure that, okay, somebody's going to manage this land and it can't be a committee. It's got to be, you know, somebody who knows the land, sees it and and goes through it. And Hannah is uh, professionally trained, I believe, as an attorney, just like her father. But she came back to the land and is now managing and because all her legal expertise, all of the expertise growing up on it, the familiarity with it, the relationship with the oil and gas, you know, there's that big shale up the Haynesville shale up there that the, you know, they have to manage as well. So it's all of these different factors swirling around. And when you start adding people, especially people who aren't familiar with it, it's it's a chore. So I think that's a thing that she was able to give the women on this tour is this clear direction of, you know, if it's your land, make sure that A, you have a clear vision for it and B, a succession plan so that it goes to people who, you know, are, if it's not one person, then multiple people who at least have the same vision and are clear on, on where it's going. That's cool. Hmm. 
I mean, it seemed like the whole Women in Agriculture conference was very geared to helping people get to that next level on their operations. I mean, Brianne went to it. And I mean, I think she can tell you the conference part. I got to go on the tour part of it. But uh, from what I gathered from the, the women on the tour, they were very focused and engaged in learning these techniques and, and seeing, you know, how, um, how other people run their business. And, and Hannah, I think was just a role model for it, but what was your experience at the conference? Yeah. And we kind of talked about it last week. I will once again say how phenomenal it was. Um, and even I followed them on Instagram and they kind of were talking about some things that happened and things like that. And, I mean, it's just, it was phenomenal to see women all come together. You know, it is hard for women to take a break and leave mm-hmm. the house and say, okay, like, it's mm-hmm. going to be some me time. Or leave the farm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, again, the, the 51% of all farms in the, in the country mm-hmm. either are led by a woman or have a woman involved in the decision-making process. Yeah, and I mean, I think about, you know, whenever we went to go show and stuff, somebody had to stay behind because we weren't taking all our animals. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there were some sacrifices being made, and I heard that several times, you know, somebody had to sacrifice, somebody was watching the kids, somebody had to feed the animals, the hay, you know, stuff like that. For them to to take time to the women – praising to y'all because i know how hard that can be <laughs> i mean well, i i see it i the uh one of the ladies on the tour marilyn mccrary uh who i interviewed is just getting done raising 13 children ouch 13 wow um eight from their her marriage and five from her husband's previous marriage so it it's a lot but She's doing it, and she's interested in getting into this and being. So able she's going to gonna scale back and start farming land. She's doing both at the same <laughs> That's time, wild. so it's, it's possible. And I mean, my God, if she can manage thirteen children, what can't she manage? You know, for real. Um, but she needed a lot of those tips and, and those sorts of things. I think Hannah's legal expertise was really important, and that's one another thing. Succession planning, of course, is a legal issue, but managing the land is also an issue. Uh, just a small example. They put a clause in there for their oil and mineral rights, right? So when the oil and gas companies come through and they Mm -hmm. mine the stuff, the oil and gas companies will charge you for them to mine their own minerals in the ground. It's it's an extraction fee. And if you don't have a clause in there saying, "Uh, no, I think you're going to pay for your own you know, (laughs) process that's your company's job to extract that. But... It's just one of those details that you have to to do. You have to get a legal clause in there for them to make sure they close the gate. So if you're running cattle on that property, they're not under any obligation if they have access to close the gate unless you, you know, put that legal binding thing in there to make sure that gate is closed every single time. So there's a lot of details, a lot of things that, I, I mean, I think open people's eyes when they were. That's cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, I think that about covers us for this week. I want to thank Brianne and Carl and Avery for being here. I'm Neil Malonsaw. We'll hopefully see you next week. Hopefully. 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 He's helpful. We'll see. Somebody is. <laughs> Bye.
If you can, subscribe to us on your favorite place to get podcasts. Also, leave us a review wherever you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, and let us know what you think about the show. Reviews are great, but sharing is how you show that you're caring. So bring (laughs) your mother in, bring your sister in, share this podcast with them, let them know that you enjoy listening to the Twyla After Show. And don't forget this podcast is produced by the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation, the voice of Louisiana agriculture. 